Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we want to memorize the word as well. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way, taking heed unto thy word? Father, we thank you for the word of God, the effect it has in our hearts, our lives, and uh, help us and give us good understanding, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Now, once again, this is such a subject that um, I'm not saying this for any other reason, just probably not telling you anything you don't know, but to try to condense down into even five sessions, uh, there is a lot of information out there I've found, very helpful. I like using uh, different um, forms of media and for research, and I've found there's a lot of helpful things. So what I'm also going to do, because I've already been pressed to somehow make the notes available, because as I thought, folks can't write that fast, most people anyway. So we'll figure out what form to do that and how to make the notes available, whether to put them on the website with the messages in some form, PDF or some other form. And along with that, I'll, I'll give you a few suggested um, links to certain sites that I found very helpful uh, along this line in this particular vein and with the subject. I'm just throwing that up there now. I don't even know if I want to get to that. When it ultimately comes to evidences, we'll talk about it, a, external evidences and internal evidences. But what I'd like to do right now is to think again where we left off and begin to think again about the subject of revelation. And I'm going to just go through a few things with you, uh, as I said, because I think they're worth noting and that have to do with the subject, not only of what the Bible says about itself, um, and later on we'll find evidences, both external evidences and internal evidences. But um, assuming that there is a God, we'll make that assumption for the sake of argument. Now, if you really want to get out, I don't even want to call it getting into the weeds, if you want to get into some of the thought processes that have to do with the defense of the Word of God, uh, if you want to get into that field of apologetics, the field of bibliology in particular, you'll run across certain things that have to do with presuppositional arguments and arguments that are not presuppositional. Uh, presuppositional arguments, sometimes also known as, uh, can be referred to as circular reasoning, which it really isn't. But I want to say that because everyone, in one way or another, no matter if they're an atheist or if they're a believer in God, makes certain, has certain suppositions. The atheist believes there is no God. He starts from that basis, you see. We who believe in God start from another basis. So it isn't really fair for someone to say, well, you, you started with a presuppositional argument. You're assuming that this is true. And we'll get into a little bit later the subject of evidences, but I say that because you're going to run across it if you give it yourself to any serious research on this particular subject. But assuming that there is a God, starting with what's called, and I know I won't pronounce the Latin right because I don't pronounce English right often, I'm, I'm often reminded, but an a priori argument, starting from that supposition that there is a God, if there is a God, it is reasonable to assume that God would reveal himself. Now, we believe the word of God, we know the word of God tells us God has done that. We would certainly say that if there is a God, it is possible for him to reveal himself. And more than likely, it is probable that if there is a God, in some way he would communicate his will, 
He'd want that to be known if there is a God. Yes, those are assumptions. Uh, in order for him to communicate his will, general revelation is not sufficient. I mentioned earlier there are different forms of revelation that we find. There is general revelation. God has revealed himself in providence. Acts chapter 14, verses 15 through 17 will tell us of God having revealed himself in providence. Makes the rain to rain upon the just and the unjust alike. God has revealed himself in human nature, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and following. In Romans chapter 2 as well, verses 14 and 15 will tell you that God has revealed himself in human nature through conscience. It's funny that if people say there is no God and therefore there is no God and uh, this book is not the, the word of God and therefore we have no moral standard, we'll go up and take their wallet from them <laughs> or go up and take their new iPhone from them. And all of a sudden, they will develop a moral standard. They will say, that's wrong. You can't do that. But wait, I thought there isn't any standard to gauge that by, you see. So you can sort of show them the ridiculousness of their own arguments in that sense, can't you? All of a sudden, the person who didn't believe in morality, you take his brand new iPhone, and they, they suddenly do believe in morality, you see. That's wrong. Wait, how can it be wrong? So conscience will tell us. Conscience is a guide that God has given to us, and it is good up to a certain point. And then, as we noticed in Psalm 19, uh, the revelation of God in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day after day uttered speech, and there is no language. There is no place in the universe where those things are not heard. It's a universal language, isn't it? Uh, and even further, Romans chapter 1 will say that the evidence of God in the created world around us is sufficient knowledge so that man is without excuse. For even the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So powerful is the witness of God in the created world around us. But that witness in and of itself is not enough. It doesn't fully communicate to us God's will. It may say, well, there is a, an almighty being, but that's not enough. And so we have in the word of God given to us special revelations of various forms. God has been pleased in times past, we're told, to reveal himself in various ways. He did it sometimes in what are called theophanies, which means just appearances of God in various ways, particularly as we find in Old Testament times, before the completed revelation of the word of God was given. God often in Old Testament times, before there was a fully written scripture, communicated directly by direct communication. God spoke to people. I'd love to know how that transpired. I have no idea. Well, I have my own human speculation. But what was it when God called Abraham? Abraham, what did the voice sound like? I tend to think it was a southern drawl. Abraham? <laughs> Abraham, now son, <laughs> we don't know, do we? But it would have been interesting, and that's not to demean, of course, the Almighty, but what was it like when God spoke directly from heaven? He did that on occasion. Um, of course, one of the great revelations that God has given, and special revelation, was the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the big word incarnation simply means that he took on him a body of flesh that God uh, was welded to humanity, an indivisible being, the God, 
both God and man, inseparable and indivisible in one union, uh, the incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And then, of course, one of the great ways that God has chosen to reveal himself is through Scripture. Now let's turn back again to 2 Timothy in chapter 3 and look at this great passage that is one of the classic and key passages that when it comes to the subject of the Bible, it'll say in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We always have to define our terminology. And when we come to this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It literally means God breathed, inspired, the, the theopneustos. The Greek would be the word for God and a word that we get our word. I shouldn't do this. This sounds so gender biased, doesn't it? But uh, I'm going to ask Aaron, the catch of the Midwest, uh, the question. Aaron, did you use tools when you worked? you still work, by the way? Do you still work? Yes, okay. Yeah. But back when you usually actually worked, I mean, you know, yes, in, in body work. And did you have a, a driver, did you? Yes. What kind of driver did you have? What, yeah, a, a, you know, a, a impact wrench. Did you have an impact? Yes. What, what kind was it? What, what powered it? Ah, and you called it a? A pneumatic wrench, yes, a pneumatic wrench. And that word pneumatic is the same basis of the word spirit, and so you put the word for God together with the word, not pneumatic, the word theo for God, and the word that is for, we use the equivalent of an air thing, uh, theonuptos, or noustos, you see, God breathed. The scripture is God breathed. That's what it means by inspired. It doesn't mean that God walked out one day, saw a lovely sunset, and said, I'm so inspired by that. I think I'll do a painting. I think I'll write a poem. I think I'll write the Bible. No, that's not what inspired means. It literally means God breathed. That's interesting, isn't it, to think about all scriptures given by inspiration of God. We could draw an assumption from that, couldn't we, if we were to stop at this point and make an assumption that if this... Scripture, by the way, the word scripture, graphe, uh, we still use that today, don't we? We have people who are involved in graphics, graphic arts. That's basic root of the Greek word for scripture. The writings, the graphe, the graphics, you see, the graphics that God has given. The scripture is God breathed. Now, if God breathed a book, well, we could expect certain things from that book, couldn't we? We would expect a certain perfection from that book, would we not, if it were the work of God? I think that would be a very logical conclusion to draw from that. But be that as it may, the meaning of this is that it involves the work of the Spirit of God because that word for breathe also has to do with the Spirit, you see, the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God worked in the hearts and the minds of the writers who then wrote so that God got written what he wanted written. Now, you're not going to read that in most systematic theologies phrased exactly that way. That's my way of putting it. Simple explanation for inspiration. God got written what he wanted written. 
The final outcome was what God wanted written. And he used human instruments to accomplish it. He used a variety of different individuals, and their names are sometimes connected with their books, uh, like Paul and others, or uh, Paul wrote to certain others and so on. But be that as it may, uh, the ultimate thing is God is the author of the Bible. That is the declaration that is made here. And the Bible is God's words. Now, you'll notice in 1 Timothy in chapter 4, let's back up there if we could, 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Spirit speaketh expressly. So here you have the revelation of the Spirit. If you were to turn to chapter 1, you would read there that God in sundry times and various manners has spoken. And so we have the Trinity or the triunity of God speaking uh, all in these things. They wrote what God intended for them to write. This was God's message. Now, that's uh, how it came about. That was the working of the Spirit of God. But I want us to think now not only about that, but the method that was used, not just the meaning of it, but the method. And for that, turn with me back to that 2121. You guys memorize verses before the weekend's out. Jamel's going to memorize two one two one. Second Peter, chapter one, verse twenty one. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, let's again define words as they're used in the Bible. Holy men of God, what does that mean? It means people who are especially separated for the purpose of God. That's what it means. People who are especially separated for this purpose by God. God set them apart for that unique purpose. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And this has to do with the method or the, 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 the extent of, of what transpired. So the word there that's used, best way I can illustrate it is, imagine that there was a little a creek, a branch, a brook, whatever part of the world you're from, a stream, a river, okay? And, and you dropped a leaf into that moving water, and the water carries that leaf along in its movement. That's, that's the word born here. So the Spirit of God carried these men along. He moved them along to write what they wrote. Now, here's the unique thing that kind of blows my mind, is that he did it in such a way that they retained their individuality. This was not dictation. This was not God coming along and saying, John, take dictation. No. This was these men, and as you read the different books of the Bible, you will find that they used various methods. Luke says, you know what? I've examined the sources that are around Otheophilus and having done, I'm paraphrasing now, this diligent research into these various sources, I want to present to you this logical story and he selected his material. But in the end, it was God and the Spirit of God moving them along to get written what he wanted to have written so that the end result, the extent of it was that this indeed was God's message. Various different personalities, various different methods. 
One of the amazing things of Scripture is one of the evidences, while we're talking about evidences, one of the evidences is that this is the Word of God. I want you to just use your imagination for just a moment and imagine that you had lived three and a half years with Jesus Christ while he was on planet Earth. And it had made such a significant impact on you that you then wanted to communicate that life of Christ and what it was all about. What would you say? It's amazing, isn't it? John gets to the end of his letter, his gospel, if you will, uh, the good news according to John. And John says, many other things did Jesus Christ. Matter Matter of fact, he doesn't stop there. He said, I'm paraphrasing, he did so many things that all the books of the world couldn't contain him. It might be a little bit of hyperbole, but beyond the hyperbole, he says, there's a whole lot more that he did. And then you think, John who was so close to the Lord Jesus, the disciple that Jesus loved, that's how he refers to himself, he only chose seven public miracles. Out of all the miracles that Jesus Christ did, he only chose seven. What remarkable restraint to present the portrait of Christ that the Spirit of God moved him to communicate to us to give us that picture that we have in John's Gospel. It's it's one of the longer Gospel accounts as far as but we have chapters, and yet the restraint that was used. He didn't tell us everything. These are written that you might believe, you see, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, he said. These were specifically chosen. There were other times in the scripture we find um, where great restraint was used. How about this one? I'll turn to it just briefly, Revelation chapter 10. Now we're breaking into the middle of a book. Might be a bit unfair to do that, except for the sake of the example. Revelation chapter 10, verse 4. When the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and don't write them. It's not the only place in Scripture where a prophet was told, Don't write that right now. Did that prophet think, "Mm, I really wanted to... You know, how about Paul saying, I knew a man, such a man who was caught up into the third heaven. He saw things of which it was not lawful for him to speak about. You see, restraint. The writers of scripture often used restraint, another evidence, because if it was just human beings doing this, you see, they're going to tell everything, but they didn't tell everything. And so the, the fact of the restraint, another one of the great evidences of the Word of God. Now, when it comes to the subject of inspiration, there are two words that you ought to be familiar with. So, you young people here, especially, and um, there's going to be a couple times here where I'm going to tell you things, and I'm going to tell them to you for two reasons. One, because I want you to know them, but two, because these are things easy to remember, and you can go home and tell your parents you really were listening. When they ask you, what'd you do? Did you play on your phone all the time, or did you listen? No, I listened, and listened to what I learned. And you'll impress them and amaze them, you see, that you really were paying attention. And so there are two words. This is one of those things. We're going to have a couple of them as we go along. But these two words are words that you ought to be familiar with. And they're the words plenary and verbal. Plenary and verbal. P-L-E-N-A-R-Y and verbal, just like it sounds. Verbal. (laughs) V-E-R-B-A-L. When it comes to scripture, we speak of the 
plenary, plenary inspiration of Scripture and the verbal inspiration of Scripture. And those are words that indicate that the fullness, all of the Scripture is inspired. Not part of it, but all Scripture, as 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, is inspired of God. The plenary inspiration of Scripture. And then the verbal inspiration of Scripture, that is the very words that were spoken, you see, the very words that were used, inspired of God. It is necessary to have correct words, to have correct thoughts. You can't communicate correct thoughts without correct words. And so God gave the very words that the writers recorded, not just the thoughts, the plenary and the full, uh, or the full and the verbal inspiration of Scripture, not just in areas of salvation. Not just in, in spiritual truth so-called. The Bible in nowhere implies limitations to inspiration. The Spirit of God guided these people in the choice of their words. While we're in, if we still are a revelation, turn to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 19, the last chapter in our Bible. And here, there, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The very words. Not only were the words crucial that were used, do you know there were sometimes in the arguments of Scripture that it wasn't just the words that were important. Sometimes it was a very letter. Follow the argument in Galatians. And chapter 3, Galatians in chapter 3, now if you can't remember plenary and verbal, you can at least know where Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are, General Electric Pepsi-Cola, <laughs> or whatever you use to memorize those books of the Bible, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians chapter 3, and Paul making a very logical uh, and reasoned argument, of course, by the Spirit of God, says in verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one to thy seed, which is Christ, hear his whole argument about the Messiah and the covenant and the promises that were made to Abraham of the Messiah that would come, the descendant that would follow, they all turn not on a word, but on a letter, whether it was singular or whether it was plural. And it makes all the difference in the world here, that one letter. He said not to seeds, plural. No, God said to seed, singular, one descendant, you see, ultimately. And so you see, when it comes to inspiration, how crucial it was when it comes to these critical areas. But all of it was critical. Here's the problem. If we don't take the full inspiration of Scripture, well, which parts do we take? And who then becomes the judge of which parts are Scripture and which parts aren't? God didn't give it piecemeal like that. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and so on, even uh, the very the very words of Scripture as we sit. And so um, 
very helpful to remember that particular argument. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, it gets even more minute than that, if you will. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 and 18, think not that I'm come to destroy, destroy the law or the prophets. I'm come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot, not one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now he's talking about not just a, a, a word and not just a letter, but even the little marks. I don't, I know habla espanol. We call it an, mm, you know. And, hmm? Tilde. 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 I like the sound of that. You know, a little, mm. So it's not sardina. Sardinia. Ah. Yes. So the little mark there, you see, it's not even a letter. It's the little mark that gives it the, you know, the little da da da, you see. So even that, you see, the Lord said, not even one little jot, not one little tittle, not one iota, you see, shall pass. That's the Lord saying that. So again, we see how the Lord, in that sense, tied himself with the truth of the inspiration of Scripture, the full inspiration, and the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Four, um, next, when we think of the results, if everything we've said thus far is true, Scripture is infallible, and Scripture is inerrant. It is infallible, that is, it is unfailingly accurate, it is trustworthy, It cannot deceive us. It is inerrant. It teaches no error. It contains no error. Now, having said that, someone may say, you know, the Bible records a lie. This person told a lie. And whenever there is a lie, the Bible faithfully says and shows you that was a lie. You see? But it records it accurately, doesn't it? But you'll know clearly that the person lied. So uh, that is not to say that it doesn't contain things like that. It contains the faults of men. Matter of fact, one of the great evidences of the scripture, isn't it? Doesn't try to hide the faults of individuals. Can you imagine, if I were to ask you this question, and you might know the answer to it, uh, you don't have to say it out loud, but if I were to ask you this question, who was the greatest king that Israel ever had? In their mind, you see, it was David, wasn't it? Wasn't David the great king? Would you tell us history of your great king, telling some of the sordid things that happened in the life of David? That's not the way the other ancient kings did it. They did one or two things. They either lied and covered that stuff up and made themselves look better than they were, or they boasted in their wickedness. They didn't write things like David wrote in Psalm 51, in Psalm 32, about how he felt about the sin and the wickedness of his iniquity and how, you see, he wanted to teach people. And that's why he, can you imagine? David didn't just write about his sin. David put it to song because he wanted the people to learn. I'm not suggesting we do that. We're not David and we don't write scripture. But David did and God told him to. Imagine the people singing about your sin. 
But David wanted him to learn the wickedness, the iniquity, the darkness, the, how wrong it was. Is that the way you present your king? Is that the way you present your nobles? Matter of fact, you know, you, if you've read the Bible, um, there's only a few characters, a very few, I can think of on one hand probably. You have a tough time finding any of their sin, maybe even less than one hand. It's not that they weren't sinners, but there's only a few, isn't there, that the Bible doesn't record something that they did that honestly records what they did, the honesty of this book in revealing the truth about humanity. And that's what we need. Now, this is a great story. I tell it better than the person who was there, <laughs> who sometimes forgets the details. But I love the story. I may have told it here before. But, but it's an apropos story, particularly for the young people. It has to do with a certain Cuban fellow that some of us know, who was invited one time to speak out in California to a group of high school students. At, an, at a rather large assembly, probably several thousand students at the assembly. We'd like you to come and tell about your experience, you see, because this was back when the Just Say No program, you know, was very, very uh, prominent about drugs and things. They heard about his background. Oh, really? Yes. Well, but when you come, you can't talk about God. Oh. And when you come, you, you can't bring a Bible. Hmm. And when you come, you can't talk about Jesus Christ. Hmm. You want me to talk to... You know, we'd like you to... You know. So he came. All the dignitaries in the high school lined up on the platform. And as he got up to speak, he cleared the decks. God, the Bible, Christ. He said, I figure I'm not going back there anyway. <laughs> This guy can preach for a very long time. And the people in the back were just red in their faces. And he told those high school students, these people here, they don't love you. If they loved you, they'd be willing to tell you the truth. They don't want you to know the truth because they don't love you. <laughs> yeah. The Bible tells the truth, doesn't it? You need the truth. You need the truth about yourself. You needed the truth about God. You needed the truth about life. You needed the truth about death. You needed the truth about eternity. Where are you going to find those things in this world in which we live? A world filled with uncertainty. A world filled with voices clamoring for your attention from every side. But there's one voice that rises above it all. And it is the voice of God speaking in his word authoritatively, clearly communicating to us his will about life, about humanity, about sin, about forgiveness, about eternal life, about heaven, about hell, about all these things. The Bible is an honest book. And God is not like some dictator. He's not like you know, never mind that man behind the curtain. God isn't hiding behind a curtain. God isn't afraid to let you see him for who he is. He has revealed himself, you see, and shown us who he is and communicated who he is in his word, the Bible. There's no book like that. The Bible stands in that sense unique, which is another great evidence 
that this is indeed the word of God. It is unique in how God has revealed these things to us, people, himself, and truth in general. Whatever the Bible speaks on, it always speaks truth. If it speaks on history, it speaks truth. If it speaks on science, it speaks truth. The Bible is not a science book. The Bible is not a history book. But where it touches on history, it's true. And where it touches on science, it's true. And do you know there are many evidences that we find in the Word of God itself? We'll probably look at a few of these, um, most likely uh, tomorrow. Let me think. Ought plus ought, ought plus ought. Yeah. Um, but, uh, anyway, that, that show how the Bible was advanced beyond its time. Beyond its time. I, I don't remember. Dr. Google could probably tell you. When, uh, I, I want to think, I didn't go very far in school, so I'm not proud of that. It's just a reality. But I want to think the name Harvey... Is Harvey the one responsible for the circulatory system? Some of you nurse people could, could perhaps know that. Was it a man named Harvey who discovered or given credit for the discovery of the circulatory Well, I'll just say it this way. It was Harvey who discovered the circulatory system because I learned a long time ago in life, say it wrong, but say it strong. And <laughs> if you say it wrong, but you say it strong, well, nobody knows anyway if they don't already know. So it was Harvey, you see, that discovered the circulatory system. Anyway, uh, I want to think it was very late into the uh, 16th, 17th century, somewhere along in there. In other words, they didn't know what the Bible had said all along in the book of Leviticus, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. The Bible was far advanced. Uh, How long was it before the scientist of the day realized that the earth was not flat, and that if you kept going, you wouldn't fall off the edge, as the scientific world of its day thought, when all along uh, Isaiah spoke about, that ancient prophet, he who sits in the circle of the earth. And wherever the Bible does speak on scientific things, science eventually will catch up with it. You see? There is that which Paul warns against, which is science falsely so-called. So science has never disproved the Bible. Science has always verified, ultimately, that which was already true and which the Word of God already spoke about, although, of course, as I said, it is not a book of science. So it is inerrant and it is infallible on whatever it speaks on. Um, You can go through these references. I'll provide them later. How did they know back in that day, as far back as the book of Genesis, that the sun, have you ever seen the moon and what we call a harvest moon, as humongous as it is? How do they know that the sun was bigger than the moon? They didn't have telescopes. But Genesis 1, you can go back and look and see what's said there in the scripture, verse 16 and verse 17. How uh, how long did it take the medical field to catch up. Do you know that during the Dark Ages, Jewish people were persecuted because, for one reason, they thought and claimed that they were practicing witchcraft. Why? Because a lot of the people that attended, the Hebrew midwives and so on, and others that attended to the Jewish people, they weren't dying of the various certain contamination diseases that many of the other medical people were. And you know why the medical people were dying? The non-Jews? 
Well, they'd go in to do an exam on a woman, or they'd go in to deliver a baby. Well, of course, you have to wash your hands, don't you? And they had a, a bowl of water there. And they'd wash their hands in the bowl of water. And they'd go examine the woman. And then they'd wash their hands in the bowl of water and go examine the next woman. And on and on it went, spreading the contagion, you see. Well, and the Jews weren't dying as they were. Why? Well, because the Word of God had always said they were to wash their hands in running water, a practice that's still done uh, even today in the medical field, running water, you see. Many, many of these things that you can find in the Word of God. Let me give you one that's really interesting to me. Uh, There's several in the book of Job, so let's turn to the book of Job and uh, turn to chapter 37. Now, the book of Psalms, split your Bible in the middle, you'll hit Psalms somewhere, usually. And so the book of Job is just before that. Job spelled Job. Job 37. Now, you may not know this, or you may. The book of Job is considered by many to be the first book of the Bible that was ever written, predating the writing of the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're not 100% sure on that, but it may be the oldest book in the Bible, which with the theme of the book of Job is... Very significant. But in Job and chapter 37, look in verse 7, and this is going to be one I want you to think about for a moment. Job 37, 7. He sealeth up the hand of every man that all men may know his work. What kind of a seal has God put in the hand of every human being? that people might know the distinctive work of God. Anybody got, Dave? Fingerprint. God has sealed up the hand of every human being and put a mark in that hand that shows the distinctive work of God. Fingerprint. Um, Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. Verse 24, by which way is the light parted? Now, there is a device that is used. Job didn't have one, a spectroscope. How did Job know that light could be divided? Like a prism who told him. (laughs) It was a long time for anybody ever developed a spectroscope or invented a spectroscope to show that light through a prism, in a sense, could be divided. How did Job know? God, of course, told him. By the way, in chapter 38, verse 19, where is the way where light dwelleth? As for the darkness, where is the place thereof? Uh, The movement of light and so on. Now, there are many, many other of these. I won't go into them all now for sake of time, except to say a few examples that when the Bible does speak on science, the Bible is accurate, and often science, medicine, and etc. has had to catch up with the Bible. And so, inerrant, infallible, verbal, plenary, verbal, the words, plenary, the full, all of the scripture given by inspiration of God. 
Now, don't forget, if you came in and you weren't here for the first meeting, I've put some tracks back there. I particularly want the young people to have, but others can have them as well, English and a few in Spanish on uh, the subject of the Bible. I'll bring the other things I mentioned in the morning and put them out for you to have. There's the question and answer box that's in the back. So if you have questions, things you want to ask about that which has been said thus far, tomorrow we're going to get more directly into uh, the question of how we got our Bible and uh, evidences for the Word of God and reliability of the Scripture. How can we know that it is trustworthy and reliable other than the fact of assuming that if everything we've said thus far is true, the only answer is that, of course, it is a book that God has given. I say once again, if you didn't get anything else I said, well, the Lord will give you what he wants you to have. But remember this, this book communicates to us the message that God gave his son to die on the cross for our sin, that we're a sinner, and the only way we can be saved is through his son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done. And if you're not saved, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will, Scripture says, be saved. How do we know? The Bible tells us. I close with this one example. It would probably fall more appropriately under the, the, uh, the category of uh, this is the little track, by the way. Why trust the Bible? It's on the back. Probably fall more into the area, general area of evidences, but there was a scholar years ago. His name was Robert Dick Wilson, and he decided to set his life to the study of things that had to do with the Word of God. So he basically gave himself to the study of the languages of Scripture. He studied New Testament languages, Greek, for about 15 years. He studied Hebrew and Semitic languages, Aramaic and so on, for about 15 years. Then he spent another 15 years uh, studying some of the other Eastern languages, ancient languages, and compiling the results of his studies. 45 years he studied those things. And at the end of his study, he said basically this, at the end of my studies of 45 years, I have concluded, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Now, I could have told him that, saved me 45 years, you see, but, but it's a fantastic story, isn't it? And it has a point to it. Jesus loves me, this I know. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. And we can trust, indeed, that this is God's word. Father, we thank you for giving us a book that we can hold in our hands and that we can read. And if we can't read it, we can hear it. We can listen to it. Uh, it's been recorded. It's been put in Braille. It's been translated into so many different languages around the world and so many different dialects around the world, more than any other book. And so you've made your word available. We thank you that we can hold it in our hands. And more than that, we can read it, and we can believe it, and we can practice it, and we can enjoy it, and we can share it with other people. We're thankful that you are a God who would communicate to us truth, and you give it to us in a form that we can actually look and examine and read and study and memorize 
and preach and teach and, and, and just communicate it in so many various ways with so many different media. We pray that we might be diligent to do so. If we really believe that this is a book that you have given to us, a message that you have communicated to us, Lord, what do we do with it? How do we respond? Surely we wouldn't neglect it, Lord. And so help us, we pray. We thank you for those who are here tonight. We ask your blessing as those who travel distances to get back home and even those who go shorter distances. We thank you again. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.